Well, today on the show, I'm joined by David Bates. David joins me today to talk about Clive Staples Lewis, a.k.a. C.S. Lewis. I've mentioned on the show before that C.S. Lewis has been and is a hero of mine. His writings, his way of reflecting, his way of articulating and explaining thoughts and ideas and beliefs um, has been so challenging to me as a young boy, as a teenager, and now as a man. And I thought it'd be fantastic to have somebody like David Bates on with a beautiful English accent, although he's over in the States, with which we'll forgive him for now. Um, but having David on to the show to uh, explore and dive into the man, the beliefs and the writings. Um, I couldn't ask for someone better and somebody more experienced. Um, David will say that he's an amateur in this space, but actually his show and his reflections and the guests that he has on with his co-hosts, I think, speak volumes about the way that they approach C.S. Lewis, the way they look at his writings and his works, uh, and the way they want to share that with the wider audience. So this is my conversation with David to explore C.S. Lewis, his life, his writings. If you're new to When Belief Dies, I'd ask you to hit the subscribe button and then select the bell notification icon. That means you'll be reminded whenever we release a video. And if you wouldn't mind giving it a thumbs up, it helps to share this conversation with other people by boosting us across YouTube's algorithm. And also, if you wouldn't mind sharing this with your friends, family, followers, we grow because of you. So consider who would find this a helpful conversation on the lives and works of C.S. Lewis, and please share that with them. Anyway, Enough of that for now. I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Bates on C.S. Lewis. Cheers. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam. Today I'm joined by David Bates. David, it's great to have you on the show, my friend. I'm really, really honoured to be invited. Thank you. It's been a little while coming, I think. We've um, we've spoken quite regularly in the past, and it kind of dwindled down a little bit. And then I was, and still am, a big fan of your uh, of your uh, podcast, which I'll let you introduce in in a moment's time. Um, but I thought it'd be great to get you on the show today to talk about um, a hero of mine that I've mentioned before on the show, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, somebody that I know that you know a lot about, um, given your hobbies and your fascinations and your. I guess your your life's work, that's what I'd call it anyway. Um, but anyway, before I kind of start putting words into your mouth, um, it'd be really cool to get an overview of who you are, uh, the work you do, and the show that you run. Sure thing. My name is David Bates. I am an Englishman, uh, but I live in the United States. I've lived here for about 15 years at this point, lived in a bunch of different places, uh, but I've now settled in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is for most people, the middle of nowhere. And I live here with my wife and children. I work as a remote software engineer. But uh, yeah, today I'm here to talk about C.S. Lewis because I'm definitely not a Lewis scholar. I am an amateur and I wear that label with pride because someone who is an amateur, etymologically, it means someone, one who loves. And I have always loved Lewis when I was a child. Chronicles of Narnia, I was a, I was a huge, huge fan. And I rediscovered him as I was rediscovering my faith in my 20s. Um, and because of that, you know, I started reading more of him. And then it eventually led to a C.S. Lewis reading group, which then became a podcast. Uh, and that podcast is Pints with Jack, Jack being Lewis's nickname. And through running a podcast for 
think we're now six or seven years, I've had the opportunity to read through his books slowly with two of my friends, uh, as well as have an excuse to interview legitimate scholars who are far smarter than myself. As I'm sure you've found, it's much easier to say, would you like to come on my podcast, rather than tell a complete stranger that you love what they do and you want to talk to them for an hour, record it and share it with your friends. Yeah, it's so true. I am... I, I do love the fact that I can use this podcast to speak to whoever I want to about subjects that I would never be able to just have an hour of their time, like philosophy professors or whoever they are, just like this random dude emailing them. No, but if you say podcast, then they're like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm game for that, which I find funny because this is still just like a, a train wreck most of the time. Um, okay, so a fellow Englishman over in the States, and um, that's quite exciting. Um, you're obviously running this show. It's kind of slowly evolved from, as you already mentioned, like a book group into into a podcast and something that's been running for multiple years now where you get the chance to um, speak about one subject, um, but obviously a very big subject in and of itself. Um, mm -hmm. I'm aware that every single question I have on this list um, is going to be something you've already covered in far greater detail in the show. Um, <laughs> but I still think it'd be good to give the, the audience an overview of who C.S. Lewis was, um, the man, his writings, mm -hmm. his faith, um, the effect that his writings have had on yourself and on myself, I'm sure I'll share a bit as well. But before we do dive into all of that, let's start with the bedrock. It'd be really good to understand um, who C.S. Lewis was, um, just an overview about the man and the life that he led, if that's possible. Absolutely. Uh, there is a lot to say, so feel free to cut me off if I start heading down rabbit trails that I find interesting. Uh, yeah, so Clive Staples Lewis, that's what the C.S. stands for. Uh, those of you who listen or have read uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Tread will know that it begins, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I think that's biographical. I don't think Lewis was a great fan of his name, uh, since from a very early age, he insisted on being called Jack, so after, named after a, a dog who had apparently died. Um, so that was from about the age of four. So his friends and family called him Jack, and I'm Sure, throughout this interview, I will alternate between calling him Lewis and Jack. Just want to emphasize at the beginning, that's the same person. Because I've given talks on Lewis before, and I've had some very confused people come up to me afterwards like, okay, both of these people sound great. Um, who's this Jack person? Uh, but he was born in Northern Ireland in 1898. A lot of people just assume that he's English, and particularly if anyone's listened to him speak, because there are a few surviving recordings. You can get all of the four loves. With, with him reading it, as well as a few bits of the radio broadcast, which became Mere Christianity and Perilandra. Um, but he was, he was Irish. And his mother died early in his life. I think he was about nine. And that was an earth-shattering event from him. He describes in his autobiography, he says that all settled happiness disappeared from my life. And his father couldn't really deal with it either. And so his father sent him to boarding school, right, pretty much right after his mother died. And so he went to boarding school in England. And uh, it does pain me as an Englishman to read his description of coming to England because he absolutely hated it. He didn't think it was anywhere near as beautiful as Ireland. And uh, all the people there had the voices of demons, that's how he described it. Uh, but he said that he, he made up with England later in life. And that's really where he spent most of his life. He would go back uh, on vacation back home. Uh, back on holiday to, to Ireland quite often. But he went to boarding school, absolutely hated it. And he had been raised a Christian uh, in the Church of Ireland, uh, but he became a confirmed atheist 
while he was still at school. We can talk a little bit about why that was, uh, but there, 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 there were a lot of streams of thought that sort of coalesced for him that brought him to his atheism slash agnosticism. I'm not quite sure how he would have passed all of it out, um, but he was very often... Uh, he favoured quoting uh, Lucretius, as all you know, children do, who was an Epicurean poet who said, had God designed the world, it would not be as frail and faulty as we see. So the problem of pain was certainly an issue for him, as well as just the general fullness of the world. And it is with that view of the world that he then entered World War I. He arrived on the front line in France in the trenches on his 19th birthday. Uh, which is incredibly rough. And so he endured all of the horrors of war that you can imagine, you know, having friends die. Um, his brother was also um, in the army, but they managed to both survive. Lewis was actually, he was injured by friendly fire. Uh, and that actually meant that he could go home. And he returned to England. He went to Oxford University. And this is where Lewis he really shone because he had been preparing to enter Oxford University by training with a man called Kirkpatrick, who was uh, who also held to Lewis's atheism. Uh, he described himself he described him as a an atheistic Presbyterian, which meant that on Sundays he wore a slightly nicer suit to do his gardening. So some habits die hard. Uh, but Kirkpatrick had prepared him and he'd really flourished under him and that this is how he got into Oxford and this is when he excelled in his studies. But it was while he was Oxford that he started to rethink his worldviews and there was a lot going on there. Um, we'll probably talk... Uh, actually, with all of this, there's so much more to say, but basically he started to see problems with his worldview and things in the world that he saw that he couldn't just explain with naturalism. And so he first of all became a theist. So he believed in God and he was, he was not happy about this. If your listeners have heard Christian testimonies, they'll be very used to hearing Christians going glassy eyed and talking about what a wonderful experience it was coming to know God. That wasn't Lewis's case. He said, you must pitch me in my room alone at night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. I eventually gave in, admitted God was God, knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. So he wasn't particularly happy about it, but he went in with both feet. He started attending chapel, not because he was a Christian, but because he thought one ought to fly one's flag. He had been known as an atheist, and this was a, a signal that he was no longer an atheist. But he didn't believe in the Christian God, he'd, but he believed that there was God. And it was a little while later on a long, late-night conversation with some friends. Um, we'll almost certainly t talk about them, but it was Dyson and J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, he had a long, late-night conversation with them on this uh, little walkway near, where, near Magdalen College called Addison's Walk. And it was there that he, it was or shortly afterwards at least, that he passed from theism to putting his faith in Jesus and returning to Christianity. And at Oxford, Lewis was part of the Inklings, and two of these men were Inklings. And this was this informal literary discussion group, and it included Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, Tolkien, a bunch of others. Um, so there was, there was quite a broad range of belief in that you had... Um, Anglicans, Catholics, anthroposophists, and you know, a, a few more eclectic uh, belief systems. Um, 
And what the Inklings would do is that they would meet in Lewis's rooms on a Thursday uh, and read aloud their works in progress. This is how a lot of Lewis's works and Tolkien's work, you know, first saw the light of day. And then on Tuesdays, they would meet in the Eagle and Child pub uh, and share a pint and talk about university gossip. And that's actually why our podcast is called Pints with Jack. Jack is C.S. Lewis and we're drinking pints because he would gather with his friends, you know, to enjoy a nice beer. And uh, as we're doing this interview, I'm currently enjoying a, a local Wisconsin beer that is called Totally Naked. And so as I was coming upstairs, I told my wife that I was going to be doing an interview and I'll be doing it totally naked. She didn't think it was funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so overall, over the course of his career, Lewis, he wrote many different books on a wide range of genres. He did apologetics, science fiction, fantasy, literary criticism, essays, the whole gamut. And probably the last thing that's really worth mentioning is the fact that he spent most of his life as a bachelor. Uh, but when celebrity came to him through particularly the Screwtape Letters, that was what really put him on the map, particularly here in the States, he received lots of fan mail. And one of them was from a lady called Joy Gresham. And they quickly became firm friends. And she moved to England. And when the British government was trying to kick her out, uh, he offered her a paper marriage. So they would go to a registry office, get married, and so she and the boys could stay in England. But it wasn't meant to be anything more than that. Uh, but a little while afterwards, she became very sick. And Jack realized that he had deeper feelings for her. And so they were married in an Anglican wedding ceremony in at her hospital bed. And the priest who came to marry them laid hands on her and prayed. And to everyone's delight, she went into remission for four years. But the cancer did eventually return. And that was when Lewis chronicled his grief in his book, A Grief Observed. And Lewis himself, he didn't last too much longer. He had a relatively early death, one week before his 65th birthday. Wow. Okay, there's so much to um to touch on there. I think it'd be interesting to dive into the... I kind of want to talk a little bit about his, his unbelief, his atheism to begin with, but we can maybe come back to that. I think w one of the bits that really interests, uh, interests me about Lewis and about Tolkien and, and others that influenced Lewis was um, the use of story or or myth. I think myth, when we say myth today, people just get the wrong end of the stick, but kind of like um, <laughs> historical myths yeah. that kind of meant something um, rather than myths we just make up about UFOs or whatever. Um, but basically there, there seems to be this <laughs> th this idea that, that myth has the ability or story has the ability to refract truth um, to us. Um, it, it's a sort of a way of transposing uh, an idea that doesn't necessarily need you to kind of write it down syllogism, syllogism by syllogism, but actually you can get the, the, the crux of what's going on through this, this myth or this narrative. Um, looking at people like Tolkien, maybe even Chesterton or some of the others that have also influenced Lewis. It'd be interesting to kind of, to kind of get your take on that and explore it further. Kind of how, how, how does myth play a role or story play a role in, in Lewis and his life and writings? Mm. When you read a lot of Lewis, you find that there are two things that were very important to him, reason and imagination. And he described reason as the organ of truth and imagination as the organ of meaning. And you find both of these things come together in stories uh, and particularly myth. I'll mention a little bit more about myth in a moment, but stories allow us to enter into another world. 
Lewis wrote in An Experiment in Criticism, he says, my own eyes aren't enough for me. I must see through the eyes of others. That when we read a story, we can become Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. You know, we can become the space adventurer in Out of the Silent Planet. And it allows us to look at the world differently. And that has tremendous power uh, to engage the, the whole person. Because we are not just purely rational creatures. It's very tempting to think that we are, but it's, it's ironically, empirically provable that we're not. The fact that many other things go into our worldview, into the, the decisions that we make. Uh, for example, Lewis, when he's talking about faith, he talks about it as, um, as, as trust, uh, hold on, holding on to what your reason has revealed to you. Uh, for example, if you, I, I went skydiving. And I did a lot of research beforehand. And I found out it was very safe. The school that I was going to was really good. But I'll tell you, when you were standing on the edge of that plane, looking down, you know, reason went out of the window. And I just wanted to run and, you know, cower in the corner and just wait for them to land the plane properly. Uh, so human beings are much more complicated than just pure reason. And myth in particular speaks to us at a very deep level. And in Lewis's own story, he'd always been entranced by myth, particularly the Norse myths. Uh, he speaks about coming across uh, the, the myth of Balder. Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead, is dead. And it, it touched him in a way that he couldn't quite understand. And he had this lifelong love of myth in general and Norse myths in particular. And this was actually something that Tolkien challenged him on because Tolkien also loved myth. But at the, at the point when Lewis was coming to believe in God, uh, Lewis still regarded myth as lies breathed through silver. So they're pretty, they're inspiring, but they're ultimately lies. And Tolkien uh, responded by writing a poem. And I would love to see more apologists write their responses in verse. I think that would be great. I think that would really move the art form forward. But Lewis, uh, but uh, Tolkien wrote this uh, poem called Mythopoeia, and basically where he argues for the value of myth. And from that long late night conversation that Lewis had walking around Addison's Walk with Dyson and Tolkien, he came to see that he had, had come to them to the other myths, very open to them, and was delighted to be moved by them and engage in the truth that they were communicating. But he was shut off when it came to Christianity. He, sa he said that when he found the dying and rising God motif in, in other myths, he allowed himself to be moved, but he refused to let Christianity speak to him in that way. And what Tolkien communicated to him, what he allowed him to see was that Christianity is itself a myth. And I, there, I do mean it in the very technical sense that Lewis meant it. It's very easy to misread what he's saying. But that this is communicating a truth, is communicating a worldview. But it has one important difference from those other myths. It's true. It is myth became fact. That's one of Lewis's essays that not only is the Christian story a story that communicates a worldview, but that it's one that we can pin down in history, uh, in the reign of Pontius Pilate. We know who was high priest at the time, and that being a crucial difference between the Greek myths and the Roman myths, uh, or regular fairy tales that happened once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, and as Lewis saw the Christian story.
so we've kind of got this this fascinating journey then about somebody who um is agnostic or atheistic in their in their worldview they are on the front line they're seeing horrors i mean i was recently reading some accounts from model one from diaries about men who uh, essentially lost their belief in god because of the atrocities they saw and mm. um, obviously both lewis and tolkien were um people that went to the front line that saw war and then came back and, and either had or retained or made a faith afterwards and i know that happened for others as well but i think it'd be really interesting to kind of sketch the sort of if it's at all possible please to sketch the the line of of thought progression from a sort of kind of i don't believe to kind of what made lewis begin to actually believe in christianity kind of was it like what is it, it is it possible to pinpoint the precise arguments or reasons or story or is it more that there was an a, an, an accumulative case and then he just realized one day that actually the dam burst and it, the flood has come through like how, how did it work for him in surprised by joy which is his autobiography he offers quite a few incidents that stood out to him uh, and we can look at Lewis's apologetics to see what arguments he finds convincing, so much so that he's willing to share them with other people. Um, a large part of his conversion was, first of all, to theism, to the belief in God. And that seems to be largely in part to one of his friends, Owen Barfield, who wasn't a Christian, but he believed in uh, a higher power. He wasn't a, a materialist. He wasn't a naturalist. And he and Barfield had long, long arguments. They, they dubbed it the Great War. And it's very philosophical and it's kind of dense. Um, but effectively, Lewis started seeing that naturalism couldn't explain everything that he saw in life. And in particular, the bits that he valued the most. In Spice by Joy, he talks about how both his books and friends were turning against him because he kept finding that he was surrounded by believers of some stripe and that the books which really fed him were by those who also embraced a supernatural point of view. He says that the people who should have really have fed me, that were the people who held my same, my same philosophy of life, I found them very thin. Uh, but when I, when I went to, uh, you know, whether they were ancient pagans or modern Christians, he found those works rich and reflecting the complex complexity of life uh, and really grounding things like the transcendentals, the good, the true, the beautiful, which Lewis had found real difficulty in grounding that in just naturalism. And at the time, he was also a philosophy professor. And so he was really trying to hammer out his own philosophical point of view. Uh, and so, some of the arguments that he presents in his various works uh, point to the philosophical side of things that really uh, drove him uh, away from naturalism. So, for example, he speaks in many different places, particularly mere Christianity, about the argument for morality. And uh, uh, he begins mere Christianity by saying, everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, sometimes it's unpleasant. But they see, say things like, uh, uh, how would you like that if I did the same to you? That was my seat. I was there first. Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. And he basically makes the point that when people are arguing like this, they're assuming that there is some common standard to which everybody holds. And people never say, oh, there is no standard. I don't care. They always just try and justify why the standard should be bent or changed in their particular case. So the, the grounding of morality was definitely a big question for him. Under naturalism, do I have moral obligations? And if so, what are they actually grounded in? Because um, he also experimented with various forms of, I would call it philosophical evolutionism, 
to try and explain away some some of these items, but he didn't find them particularly convincing. Uh, and, and another one related to that is the argument from reason. He speaks about this in Miracles. And he, he quotes uh, a skeptic who says, uh, if my mental processes are determined wholly by motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. And hence, I have no reason for supposing that my brain to be composed of atoms. Uh, that argument from reason, is, honestly, it's one of the ones I find particularly convincing um, that if we are just going to reduce our minds to our brains and it's just purely a mechanical process, I have no real reason to trust it uh, or trust that it will lead me to truth. Uh, but one thing that you also find throughout Lewis's works is, in various forms, is the argument from desire. In mere Christianity, he says that if creatures are not born with desires and a satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby's hungry, well, there's food. A duckling wants to swim, there's such a thing as water. Man has sexual desire, well, there's such a thing as sex. And then he concludes from that, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And this speaks to this yearning that Lewis had throughout his life. He, he called it joy, uh, which I don't think is a particularly useful name. He called it also Zenzucht, this, 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 this desirous longing for this something else, which you occasionally get glimpses of in this life, and you never quite uh, get your arms around it. Um, and... While the argument from desire might not be the tightest argument, I've seen people like Peter Kraft uh, tidy it up a little bit more in terms of syllogisms. But it, it, that is also another one that particularly appealed to me. I did feel like that I had this desire for something that as good as this world can be at times, there's still a point when you know, you've had the best food, you've heard you know, the best opera, the best play, you've read the best book. You still kind of say, well, is that it? Uh, and that there seems to be a desire in us for not just some beauty or some goodness or some truth, but infinite amounts of it. Uh, as St. Augustine said, um, and Lewis was a great fan of Augustine, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until they rest in you. And so it was as Lewis was both trying to un grapple with the ideas of you know, basing morality in something purely materialistic, understanding why he should trust his mind, again, just on a, on a blind, uncaring process, um, so you had that on the one side and you had this desire in him on the other hand, uh, for something more. And when he went to imaginative works, this is where he found that, found it. Uh, he found it in George MacDonald, um, who wrote Fantasties. And that seemed to speak to him of, of a beauty that, uh, sort of put people like, uh, Wells and Shaw to shame. Um, and, and, uh, just, just a couple of other things I, I, I remember now, now I'm thinking about it. He, he also comments at one point about the Gospels, and this was before he was even close to Christianity, but he said that one of his most hard-boiled atheist friends said that, um, that the evidence in the Gospels actually seemed kind of good. He said, said something like, uh, rum thing, uh, that myth of a dying and rising God, it looks like it almost happened once. And that actually kind of shook Lewis because he thought, well, if 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 somebody that is so committed to atheism as this guy could say that there actually is some evidence, well, might there actually be more? Um, and this is this is what drove him on his search, as he's searching for joy and trying to come up with a coherent philosophy and finding that he's now surrounded by books and friends which are supporting him, moving towards Christianity and seeing whether or not that is going to be able to answer the questions which he's been wrestling with. And we'll get to some of Lewis's other works in due course, but um, 
I want to talk about Narnia for just a moment. It's something that I was raised on. I've got um, a really nice um, old old hardback edition that I was given kind of when I was like 10 years old, basically, that uh, I was reading with my kids about a year ago. And um, I still absolutely love these stories, right? They still hold so much meaning and value to me. Um, I think it's true to say that Narnia holds a special place in many people's hearts, although I'm finding more and more people just haven't heard of it these days, which is, which is also interesting. But... Um, I kind of got a question around this. Let me just kind of go through this. So uh, we see Lewis express Christianity through narrative in a way that children can grasp with Narnia. So can you explore what Narnia is all about and what Lewis hopes to achieve by putting it to paper and publishing it? Mm. Well, let me first of all uh, put to put to bed the idea that Narnia is an allegory. It's often described as such, and that's not quite fair. Lewis called it an imaginative supposal. So the most famous book and movie is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Lewis said, well, what might it be like if the second person of the Trinity, what if Christ um, came to, made a world like Narnia and became incarnate there as well, died and rose again? What would that be like? And that's really what Narnia is trying to, trying to answer. It's kind of like a, some speculative fan fiction. And... What Lewis was trying to achieve was to write a children's story. He had not any children of his own, own at the time. Uh, he eventually uh, looked after his wife's uh, when, when, after they married because she had two sons, David and Douglas. But he had not had any real contact with children. And uh, he came down uh, for breakfast one morning and announced that he was going to try and write a children's book. And his brother and his... Uh, sort of mother. Uh, she was an older lady. There's, there's a story behind that because he was uh, taking care of her because one of his comrades died in the First World War and he promised that he would look after his mother. But they, they roared with laughter because they thought it was just so ridiculous. You have this stuffy Don uh, from Oxford, um, an English and a philosophy teacher, and he's the one that's going to try and write a children's book. But Lewis had always loved literature and we've already spoken about the power of imagination and myth and the things that really captivated him. And he wanted to try his hand at it. And he'd had uh, several images in his head that he wanted to try out, one of which was a fawn with an umbrella walking through a, for a forest that was filled with snow. But when we look at what he actually does in Narnia, we see that he do certainly does communicate the Christian worldview, but under different symbols. Uh, and it's probably worth mentioning that he had written Out of the Silent Planet before he wrote Narnia. And that is effectively a sci-fi story. Uh, a man is kidnapped and taken to Mars. Um, he has some adventures and then he comes back. And Lewis commented in a letter to one of his friends, Sister Penelope. He said that, I think it was out of 60 reviews, only two of them had any inkling that he had been communicating things about philosophy and theology. And he writes to Sister Penelope, oh, if only there was somebody that had better talent and more time. This, this, this great ignorance could be used for the evangelism of England. And he said, any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under the cover of, he calls it romance, we would say fiction or adventure. And he also spoke about the ability to get past people's watchful dragons. Basically, that if, if one is um, resistant to Christianity or even aggressive towards it, uh, one can read a story that doesn't appear, at least from the outset, to have anything to do with Christianity, but it can 
A, communicate some Christian ideas, and B, allow you to enter in and see with those other eyes that Lewis talks about in an experiment um, in criticism. And that, I would say, is what he's really doing with Narnia. You get to see what, A, a Christian worldview is like, but also a fantastical one, you know, one that is set in a world of talking beasts. So we deal with things like the death of parents. In The Magician's Nephew, Lewis basically rewrites his mother's story, although this time uh, she doesn't die, but she's healed with an apple. But we deal with lots of very weighty philosophical topics, but still under the guise of a children's book. And I'm actually going to be interviewing uh, someone on the show later this season where we're actually going to talk about the apologetics that we find in Narnia because it, it challenges certain presuppositions and worldviews. Um, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we hear one of the characters say, in our world, a star is a flaming ball of gas. And it receives the response that, my son, even in your world, that is not what a star is. It's only what it is made of. So someone that's reading that is already prepared to see the difference between what something is made of and what it actually is, basically lightly refuting a sort of materialistic worldview, opening them to to realities that they can't just you know see and touch. Um, and so Lewis does this throughout, throughout Narnia. Uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he has a version of his trilemma, which people may have heard of from mere Christianity, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And if you look at the conversation about what Lucy saw in the wardrobe, you see it basically boils down to those same three options. So very often you can read Narnia, and then you can pick up Lewis's apologetic or uh, literary criticism, and, and you, you, you find very similar sorts of arguments there, but now out in the open and displayed very clearly. Whereas when he's telling us about them in Narnia, he's telling them us in such a way as to get past our watchful dragons. And, and probably I shouldn't mention Narnia without mentioning at least one other thing, and that's planet Narnia. So a lot of people read Narnia growing up, and they're shocked to discover that there is a very popular theory among Lewis scholars. It was... Uh, put forward relatively recently by a scholar named Dr. Michael Ward. And it's basically showing that uh, Narnia is meant to be mimicking the the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos. And in a nutshell, it's this idea that each of the planets in the medieval cosmos has a, a theme, an atmosphere, things associated with it. And what Lewis is doing is he's, in each of the seven Narnian chronicles, he is trying to incarnate some of those ideas uh, in that book. So, for example, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's the Jupiter book. So it's all about Jove and joviality, which is why you have Father Christmas there, the quintessential jovial man. In Prince Caspian, you have, uh, that's the Mars book. And so that book is all about uh, uh, knights and swords and um, martial attacks. And also Mars was associated with trees. And anyone that knows Prince Caspian will know that the trees play a huge role uh, in the story. So... There was a lot that Lois was doing in Narnia. And so I, the, the, the only other thing I would end with is just to, uh, to caution people, trying to pigeonhole it a little bit too neatly. It wasn't simply Christian propaganda. Yeah, it's, um, I just think it's, it's just really well written. I, um, um, yeah, it, for me, the two books that always stick with me the most are the sort of harrowing, um, but honest dialogues is The Magician's Nephew and then The Last Battle. Uh, magician's nephew mm -hmm. when they're dealing with 
uh, both the magician and also the kind of evil queen. Uh, those two characters still scare me to this day in my mid thirties. Um, and <laughs> and in the last battle, the very very last scene where um, Aslan's kind of letting certain people through the door and other people or other animals, he's not. And there's that really. I, I say it's a famous scene, but this is how I've, I've I've recollected it in my mind. Is this scene where some of the animals don't want to follow Aslan, don't want to follow this way, and then turn around, but lose the ability to speak as they move away and kind of walk mm-hmm. off into the distance. Um, and it's still, whenever I read it, it still sends shivers down my spine. Like it's so such a powerful metaphor. Um, yeah, I don't know, any any recollections or thoughts on that before we press on. Oh, I have goosebumps. <laughs> yes, I I remember the first time I heard the last battle, and and that that gave me chills. Um, but it, it's an idea that you find throughout Lewis. Insofar as the closer we get to God, the more personality we really have. The further we get away from Him, the less we have. He says in Mere Christianity that if if you want to see um, bo- uh, 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 people that are all from the same cookie cutter mold boring not not special in any way he says go look at the tyrants but he says if you want to see a, a variety of people radi- radically different that's when you go to the saints you, you you go and look at the you go and look at those great people of sanctity and you find those are the people that are fully alive and it's the great tyrants that are just doing you know the same tired old sins uh just in maybe slightly more creative ways uh and the other thing i want to point out about that scene in the last battle is it's not so much that Aslan doesn't let them in it's the fact that they look at him and they don't like what they see so the animals come to him in turn and those that look at him in, in love go and join him and those that don't don't and and that's that's an idea that you find a lot in Lewis the uh, the idea that hell is is a door locked from the inside that it's ultimately life with God forever or not and it is a it is a self-choice Will you support when belief dies? Your support enables us to keep having these conversations and improving everything that we do. There are three ways to support when belief dies. Firstly, would you rate when belief dies in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible? Rating us in these spaces boosts our visibility. Secondly, would you share this episode with your family, friends, and followers? We grow mainly through word of mouth, so please consider who might find this a helpful conversation and share it with them. Lastly, would you consider supporting the show financially? You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal or Bitcoin. Everything you give goes directly towards the running and improving of the podcast and YouTube channel. All links are in the description and thank you for supporting the show. Right. Let's get back to this week's conversation. Yeah, yeah, we'll get on to the great divorce in due course. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's look at let's look at mere Christianity. So, um, from what I can tell, mere Christianity was originally um, four addresses um, released during the Blitz um, on the BBC, I think. Um, but basically, it was addressing a nation that was facing the possible invasion of the Nazi army essentially coming onto the shore. So it's it's there to distill hope and focus to people, um, at least at its minimum. It's doing more than that, I think, but that's what it's doing at a minimum. Um, he obviously later adds to it, kind of fleshes it out a bit, not loads, but a little bit, and then publishes it, publishes it as, as a, single, a single book with four books in it, which is interesting. Um, so I guess... It'd be really interesting to kind of get your your take on mere Christianity. Kind of was was Lewis publishing um, it 
the right thing to do is obviously to a very different audience by the time he is publishing it, a kind of country coming back in, back on its feet almost. But um, it'd be good to get your take on what Lewis was trying to achieve in the, in the writing and the combination of these addresses and then publishing that for, for a wider audience. Hmm. Well, you basically got the, the core parts of it right. So Mere Christianity, it's four books. In the first book, he argues that there's a binding moral law and ultimately concludes that this has to be grounded in something transcendent such as God. And then in book two, he then takes the reader from theism to Christianity, much like Lewis's own transition himself, speaking about the claims of Christ. And then in book three, he speaks about Christian behavior, Christian morality. Um, what, what does the life of grace look like? And then in book four, he digs into theology of particularly about the Trinity and about something that I would call theosis, which is basically um, how God changes you you know, when, when you are born again, when you commit your life to Christ, uh, what are the changes that happen and how? And it was originally radio broadcasts, and he actually got this gig as a result of The Problem of Pain. So uh, Jimmy Welch, he had read Problem of Pain, thought Lewis was really good, and so invited him to come on the radio. And Lewis said that he wanted just to basically speak about the Christian faith because he felt that you know, even in the 1940s, that Great Britain was ceasing to be a Christian country and that most people actually hadn't had the Christian faith presented to them. And he was saying this as someone who was, quote unquote, raised Christian, um, but it was only later in life that he discovered what it was that he had rejected. Uh, and he actually even says in the, the preface, he says that ever since I became a Christian, I thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my fellow unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief which has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. And that's what he calls mere Christianity. He steers well clear of denominational disputes, you know, the role of Mary, what is actually happening at the mass. Uh, and he just he just looks at why one should believe in God, accept Jesus and the Christian project as a whole. And you're right. I mean, there was certainly a change in audience between people who were enduring the bl the Blitz and, um, you know, a good few years later when this thing is published. But, you know, the shadow of the war, it, it was it was long and it covered the British people for a long time. So you still had people asking the same essential questions, which war and the and the possible and possible death bring to mind basically about things that things that are eternal. So I, I think I think that's true. But he didn't change it dramatically. We you know we we have we have some recordings of what he's already done and it and the the original publishing because it wasn't before it was mere Christianity, it was actually three separate books. So it went through an entire evolution. And Lewis did tweak a few bits and pieces uh, and um, responded to a couple of objections that he had received from his earlier presentations. But it's still in essence what he what he said on the radio and i don't think it's unfair to say that it is probably one of the most influential christian books christian apologetics books um of the previous century it, it just was the number of people I, i've met who either they were thinking about ceasing to be christian or this was uh one of their early entry points into christianity and and what mere christianity does is it presents that wonderful Lewisian mix of rationality and imagination. Lewis will give you rational reasons for believing. And it, it's worth saying, it's not like he, he makes everything completely watertight and 
uses advanced philosophical language to really tie down all of his terms. So some people have criticized it as being a little loosey-goosey. But remember that this was being broadcast to the general public. So he could make very, very few, um, few assumptions about the educational background of the people who would be hearing it. And also these were short radio addresses. So it wasn't like he could deal with every single possible objection out there. Um, for example, people often point to the trilemma as saying, well, it should be a quadrilemma or that there was another option that uh, Jesus wasn't liar, lunatic or Lord, but legend. But Lewis deals with that in some of his some of some of his other writings. Um, and so with that caveat that it is a short book uh, written for the general public, I, th I think it still does a wonderful job of um, painting a picture of the Christian faith, not only giving rational reasons, but giving wonderful images to help people understand the things that he's talking about. And that's a real characteristic of his work. It's very rare that Lewis will ever explain anything without giving you an imaginative picture to understand it. And, and one example I like to give is that of morality. He, he's arguing that there are uh, three parts of morality. And he does this using the example of, uh, uh, of a fleet, a fleet of ships. Again, this is written during World War II where there are fleets of ships crossing the Atlantic with supplies from America. And he says that for the fleet to work properly, each of the ships has to be in good working order. So it needs to be able to, to move its rudder and steer where it needs to steer. It also needs to stay in formation, otherwise the ships will crash into each other. And lastly, the ships will have to be heading to the right place. Um, we would talk about in philosophy of teleology. You know, so not only do I have to have control of myself, um, you know, even even the the things that I do that nobody else is going to see, I still have to have to be in good moral working order. I also have to be in good moral working order with my neighbours, so I don't you know bash into their ships, so to speak. But we also all need to be heading in the in the right direction, because a deviation of a few degrees means that we end up in a very very different place. If a plane is a few degrees off, it might land in Los Angeles or it might land in Seattle. Um, and so Lewis gives these these wonderful pictures uh, for us to think about as he's unpacking what Christians believe. So we have something to hang those ideas on, as well as to be able to not just think about them as propositions, but engage with them imaginatively. Yeah, and another example, which I'm going to absolutely butcher now, I'm sure, is the one where um, he's talking about um, the sort of corridor of, I'm going to use language he wouldn't use now, so like the corridor of faith, and there are different rooms, different um, expressions of Christianity is almost what kind of what it feels like he's trying to say, and there are uh, different people in those different rooms, and it's it's not about judging or hoping you're in the best room, and you need to go to the right room. It's 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 about going to the room which is um, which which is true. It's not about comfort necessarily. It's more about honestly seeking and searching for truth and then going in that room um, and not just remaining in the corridor. I don't know, you'll, you'll do a better job than me. Is, is that vaguely right? <laughs> That's very vaguely right. Uh, it's in the preface to Mere Christianity. He says that Mere Christianity is the hallway. So if you get into the hallway, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he said, that's not a place to stop, that there are rooms off the corridor. And he says, a corridor is a place for waiting, not living. There are fires and food inside the rooms. And he says, you've got to keep knocking. You've got to keep trying to find out what's the room that you need to go into. But to do it, not a question of, do I like this pan this paneling? Do I not like the doorkeeper? Uh, he says, you know, is there truth here? Um, is there holiness here? Uh, and that's the thing that we that we have to pursue. And 
That's, I think, one of the reasons why Lewis fosters this incredible goodwill among Christians of basically every single stripe. I can't think of too many more Christians quoted across all of the denominations. Maybe St. Augustine, uh, but because of Lewis's approach to this, that he wants just to get people to mere Christianity, and then beyond that, they have to keep searching themselves. Uh, I think that's that's why you find Presbyterians loving him, you find Baptists loving him. We actually had an Ecumenism Month on the show where we also had a Mormon. Um, we've had Eastern Orthodox folks on before. And we actually even had um, someone who is an Orthodox Jew. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he really loves C.S. Lewis. And so I think uh, that it's, it's testament to both um, the way that he writes uh, in terms of humility and good humor. Uh, he's 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 not a very aggressive writer yeah and his his language is beautiful i think um <laughs> okay let's let's push into the great divorce then so i i recently did a book review uh, for this book yeah and found it very i mean it's very very challenging i kind of ended ended the book review um saying that i'd spoken to my wife kirsty and said you know if this is true it's almost like a horror novel almost um there is the <laughs> There is the, the the reality that it's possible to 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 miss it, but not because you haven't seen it, but because you didn't want it. And I found that to be like, oh my goodness, it very much does depend on on us. Um, so the question I have then: so the, the Great Divorce seems to explore the ethereal becoming actual as it lives into reality, and we've already touched on that a little bit. Um, but I, I do really think it is a it's a fascinating expose of hell uh, and heaven and how it could make sense if we do in fact have the ability to live for ourselves or for God. So, David, how do you read the book and have I kind of hit the high notes there? I think you've hit a lot of it. Uh, I will say, first and foremost, this is my favorite book of Lewis's. We argue constantly on the podcast whether or not this is his best work or whether it's Till We Have Faces. Um, but the way, the way I would introduce The Great Divorce is in the same way I introduced Narnia. It's an imaginative supposal. It's an imaginative supposal whereby Lewis can ask some questions. And in particular, he's asking if souls from hell could visit heaven, would they actually want to stay there? And so the story begins with Lewis waiting at this bus stop in this sprawling gray town at dusk. And we later find out that this gray town is hell or purgatory if you eventually leave. And a bus arrives, and it looks magnificent, and there's a group of people that get on quarreling, uh, but they get on the bus and they go to what we find out is later heaven, or at the very least, the foothills of heaven. And there it's beautiful, it's early morning, uh, it's just before the dawn, but the land is really hard. Uh, it's more real. The, the people who have got on the bus, when, they, when they're placed in contrast to the landscape, they almost seem like ghosts by comparison. Uh, the grass is as hard as diamonds. They can't walk on it very easily. And then these figures come down from the mountain, and these are bright spirits or solid people. And they are the inhabitants of heaven who have come to the bus stop to encourage those who have come on the bus uh, to journey further into heaven, further up and further in, so to speak. And it's, it, the, the book is really Lewis's version of Dante's Divine Comedy. So Dante's Divine Comedy... He, Dante has this tour of heaven, hell, and purgatory, and he has with him a guide who is Virgil, among other people. Uh, Virgil was someone that Dante really adored. And um, in The Great Divorce, Lewis takes a similar tour of the afterlife with his guide being an author that, whom he loves, someone I mentioned a little earlier, George MacDonald. 
And the point of the book, I would say it, it turns on lots of things. And this is my favorite book, so I can talk about it forever. But I think probably the, the two main things is Lewis wants us to see the true nature of grace, of sin, of heaven and hell. Because we've all seen portrayals of heaven as being kind of boring. You know, if, if, you, if you don't like harp lessons and sit, sitting on clouds, it's probably not really for you. And there's the, the joke about why would, I want to go, why, would I, why would I want to go to heaven? All of my best friends are in hell, the, the fun people. Uh, but in The Great Divorce, Lewis wants to show us what sin does and contrasting it with the emptiness of evil things and comparing it with the richness of God, that sin is drab. It's individualistic, it's competitive, it's self-obsessed, it's prideful. Uh, when we did this in season two, the Latin phrase we kept using was incavatus in se. It was something that was used primarily by Luther, but he's quoting Augustine. Uh, and it's the idea of a soul turned in on itself. And this is what we see of those who don't open themselves up to heaven. They become less themselves, uh, these wisps of ghosts, uh, much like the, the, the animals who when they come to Aslan and they reject him, they find that they can no longer speak. They've returned to being dumb beasts. So I'd say Lewis really wants us to see uh, how empty sin truly is um, and how good heaven could truly be, but doing it in a way that doesn't come across as cliche. And you mentioned the idea of choice here. And I would say this is the crucial thing. Uh, there's a line in the book, it says... Um, McDonald says when he talks about those ghosts, those, those people who come on the bus who go back to hell, he says there's always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. Uh, there's always something that they prefer to joy, to reality. And so I guess a comparison would be to say somebody that was in an addiction who chooses a lesser good. They choose the drink, they choose the drugs, whatever. Um, when there is something objectively better, but it's, it's until they're willing to let that thing go and, and let that thing die um, that they can enter into into the joy which is being offered to them. And in The Great Divorce, we meet lots of different characters. You have lots of these little vignettes where you meet people with basically different hang-ups, people who are, who are going back to the bus and to the Grey Town for different reasons. Uh, and so, for example, you have a, a cynic uh, who refuses to be vulnerable. He refuses to refuses that. You have an artist who cares more about his own fame than anything else. That's what he's choosing instead of heaven. Um, you know, that, that, that's his hellish souvenir that he refused just to let go of. And Lewis says that he thinks that in the end, anything that we let go of, we'll find in the end has been nothing. You know, we haven't actually lost anything because we gained everything that we were actually truly looking for. And so I, I guess while much more could be said about The Great Divorce, I'd say this ultimately, ultimately, this book isn't about the destinations of heaven and hell. It's not. He's using, a, using that as a device. It's about the choices that we make in life that prepare us for one of those two destinations. Uh, something else that McDonald says is he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Uh, um, Peter Craig always says that the song that plays as the door of hell opens is, I did it my way. <laughs> uh, um, MacDonald, he says, those that are in hell choose it. And he says, without that self-choice, there could be no hell. But he then reassures Lewis, because this kind of scares him. He says, no soul that is seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. And those 
who knock, it is opened. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I still, I don't know, it's still, um, I guess it, ter- it terrifies me, if I'm being totally honest with you, this, this, this idea that, um, and I guess it's just a realisation that there might be things in my life, if, if, if it's true, if Christianity is true, and, and, and this, this idea of being able to be attached to full reality, become a full human, um, if I can let my, let go of things and enter into a relationship with God, but but also the fact that if it is true, then there are things that I could desire to pivot my life around and retain those. And, and the, there must be some individuals who, who do that and reject the, the full good. It's, it's a, it's a, a very interesting expose of, of this idea of choice. Um, I think it, it left me not in a positive place, but more in a, and I'm not saying, you know, necessarily that's, that's a negative thing, but left me in, in a very much a place of um, reflecting on the decisions I've made and, and the things that, that matter to me. I don't know, does that make does that make sense? Yeah, and and Augustine, we keep coming back to Augustine because Lewis steals from him liberally. Uh, he had this idea of rightly ordered loves, and it, it it gets the essential Christian idea of original sin. And one of the consequences of it is that we have concupiscence, basically that we don't value things rightly. We love lesser things inordinately. Uh, and Lewis, he speaks about this a lot in The Four Loves, but the solution to that is not to love the things of this world less, it's to love other things more. Um, it, you, we've all known someone that's got their priorities all askew, that they care more about their job than they do their children. That is uh, a, a love that is not rightly ordered. And that's really what the great divorce is getting to, to that we need to have our, our lives and our loves rightly ordered. And he says in uh, one of his essays, it's, it's called The Weight of Glory. He says that uh, uh, we are just far too easily pleased. You know, we mess around with, you know, sex and money when infinite joy is presented to us. And he compares it to uh, a, a child playing, making mud pies in a slum uh, because they've got no idea what a holiday by the sea might be. And so the the, the challenge is, is, is put forward by the book to reassess the orderings of our loves. Are they, are they right? Is there something that I would be willing to hang on to even at the cost of my own soul? Mic drop moment. Um, uh, one, <laughs> one, so, so just pushing to that just slightly more before we move on to the problem of pain then. So um, use the example of work uh, over children and the sort of differentiation between the two of those. Um, I agree, but another way to look at it, which which is what which is why I find it scary, bear bear with me here, is um, I've got I've got two children, two boys, um, almost eight and five. Um, I've got a very intense full full time job. Um, I do that job because it provides for my wife and my two children. Um, so I can mm-hmm. begin to find myself checking my phone for emails or becoming absorbed in work, even when I'm around my family, because I it started off in a very good place of wanting to be a good father, a good husband, providing all that sort of stuff. But it slowly becomes this, I need to be good at my job so that I can keep my job to look after my family. And then it becomes broken and almost more than the family that I, that I have around me. And that mm-hmm. transition started from a healthy place, but got bent somewhere along the way and became a negative place. And yep. that happens so easily. I think people, people might just hear what you said and just think, you know, want to become a really successful CEO of a, a, CEO of a great company, <laughs> but actually it can, it can start mm-hmm. from a re- good place of, you know, servanthood and fatherhood and all that sort of stuff and become 
broken. I don't know. Like any any final thoughts on that before we press on? Absolutely. I'm going to point back to Augustine again, uh, and, and he makes the point that people don't pursue evil for its own sake. <laughs> Very often, they're seeking a good that they think they're going to find there, and you know the the proverbial expression is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And yes, I'm sure that there are many many fathers who have neglected their children who started off from the point from the, from from the place of wanting to provide for them they wanting to sacrifice the children but they end up sac- <laughs> they want to sacrifice for the children but they end up sacrificing the children in pursuing that and that's that's why i said it's it's the great divorce is a perennial challenge to reassess the orderings of my life because i am very similar i am i also have a demanding job i work in IT, which means I'm always attached to something electronic. And there's always something electronic trying to get my attention about something that I might have to take a look at, uh, which is why I have to keep those things in check. I need to keep reassessing, am I, am I loving things rightly? Are things in the right ordering? Um, am I sacrificing for my family or am I sacrificing my family? IT nerds talking about C.S. Lewis and different consonants. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, okay, the problem of pain. So um, it, it's a highly interesting exploration of the problem of evil, essentially. Um, mm. And it's looking at the sort of, I guess, evil, suffering and pain and how God could be actual and those things still possible. I mean, I put, I put something out on Twitter and a couple of days ago which blew up i didn't expect it to do at all it's interesting it did i basically said you know um uh give give me your best reasons for either a god exists or b god doesn't exist and it it kind of came across as people began to argue within the within the twitter threads which i find fascinating like please don't ever stop doing that it's an interesting space but it became very very interesting <laughs> except very... if it becomes unhealthy in which case stop yeah i mean it's not for <laughs> me because i'm just scrolling and reading it like this is crazy but in like a good way um but yes, if you're in, in, in that thread getting angry, just 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 step away. Um, but one of the main arguments time and time again with things like, you know, uh, bone cancer in children or any sort of cancer in children, really, or you know, horrible, horrible things. And there's that really famous video, Stephen Fry, uh, talking about the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the insects eating out of children's eyes and these sorts of like the most horrible sort of suffering you can think of. Um, but Lewis kind of addresses pain in quite an interesting and nuanced way. Um, so I, I would really like you to kind of just explore for us a little bit about uh, the problem of pain, about how Lewis addresses evil and suffering. Um, he speaks very much about pain being a flag, a marker of God, rather than a reason to think there is no God, which I find fascinating. But before I put words in your mouth, I'll pass it back to you. Well, I would say it's the best argument for atheism. Hands down, without a doubt, it's the problem of pain. And I'm also stealing from St. Thomas Aquinas. And if he thought that was the best argument, and that was a man who trafficked in arguments for his his day job, uh, I think we're on pretty sure ground to say that that is the most compelling case as to why you shouldn't believe in God. Now, the problem of pain, I mean, it's Lewis, so it's always worth reading. And it was off the strength of that book, as I mentioned, that he got the, the job addressing the nation with mere Christianity. And he chiefly explains the problem of evil by saying that it's a result of 
the misuse of man's free will. And uh, I mean, he, he makes the point, though, that God can still use it. It's it's not just a strict defense of why is there suffering. Uh, Lewis offers some suggestions as how God can use it. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. However, I would also say that it's his first work of apologetics, and it's still fairly on in his career. And the book is kind of eclectic. It also talks about the fall, talks about heaven and hell. Um, so while I think it's a great book, I would also recommend that this not be the only book one reads on the question of suffering. Uh, the ones that uh, spring to mind are uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People by Harold Kushner. That's uh, a Jewish point of view. Where Is God When It Hurts? Philip Yancey. That was the first serious book I read on, on, on suffering that I found really helpful. And we actually had on the show last season Bethany Soloretta. She wrote a book called Why Is There Suffering? And the way that she outlines her book is a sort of a choose-your-own-adventure approach. So you basically come to some decisions about what you are or not willing to say about the existence of God, the nature of God, the nature of reality. And so you basically move around this map to, to reach your conclusion as to how can there be God and suffering uh, in the world. Because one option is you deny that God exists. Another option is that you deny that he's a good God. Another option is that you deny that he's omnipotent. Uh, another one is that you deny he's omnibenevolent. And so there are lots of different ways of, of cutting it. I think particularly on, on this subject, whenever I've spoken to anybody that has been troubled, and everybody has been troubled by this question, Christian, Jew, Muslim, atheist, doesn't matter. It, it is one of those questions which presses at us. We demand to know a why, even if we would, say, view the, the universe as uh, unfeeling and mechanistic and, well, there is no why. That's not even really a question to ask. It's just a sequence of biological processes that inevitably resulted in this conclusion. Uh, but I think this is one of those questions where each person comes to a peace in his or her own way, whether that lands them in atheism, agnosticism, different forms of Christianity or a particular kinds of arguments um, such, you know, Christians have offered things like pointing towards the rewards of heaven. And it's like, well, if we've got infinite joy at the other end of this, then that's not going to compare with what, what we've, uh, what we encounter here, the suffering Christians have also pointed to say the fall. It's like what we look at when we see the world is exactly what Christians say we should see there. Um, that we, that we see the world is broken. Chesterton said that uh, this, the original sin, this was the easiest doctrine to prove he said just spend a day reading the paper and if you you know <laughs> you, you should come to that conclusion and then others point like lewis to free will um that there is is a necessary that is a necessary condition for for true love that god can only create creatures that can love him if they can choose to reject him and mess up not only themselves but each other and then you've lastly i'd say got this idea that god can right straight with our crooked lines that he can take the the things that are that are broken in this world and use them to his good purposes and his greater glory and for christians the chief example of that is the cross to the outside world this looks like the worst thing that's ever happened you know however you regard jesus usually most people regard him as at least a good man and here he is being nailed to a tree to die in one of the most excruciating ways but the Christian claim is that, well, through this suffering, something marvelous happens. A great redemption takes place. 
And if God can do that with something like the crucifixion, he can do that with other things in our lives. And I would say most people who have lived a good chunk of life will very often have found that some of the most painful things that have happened to them actually turn out to be really formative. Um, whether it's parents getting divorced, that they then took the um, importance of fidelity in marriage uh, much more seriously. Whether it was the death of a child and we lost a child uh, in ectopic pregnancy very early in our marriage. And it was a horrible and something I never want to do ever again. But I think it did open up my heart to my to my, to, to my the, the kids that came afterwards, realizing how precious and how fleeting their lives and my life actually is. So in conclusion, I think I would say that The Problem of Pain is it's a great book to start, but I would encourage, as, as big as a Lewis fan as I am, I would say don't stop there. Because Lewis might be giving arguments to you that just don't speak to you, that that you that you can say, well, okay, free will. Okay, but that doesn't explain everything. What about this? What about this? Um, and we, we there, there's an awful lot of other material written on this that can help people find different explanations that uh, that bring them peace. Yeah, it's so interesting. My sort of only two real reflections on this is, um, uh, one, I think very often we think the problem of evil, the problem of pain, or whatever language you want to use, um, is a modern thing. And obviously, you know, if you, you just look at the infant mortality rate of the of the time of the New Testament, you realize that the problem of pain isn't, it's not, it's not a recent thing. People still believed in God and were very, very aware of, of evil and suffering and pain. Um, the second thing that I seem to find keeps creeping up in me in, in this sort of um, interesting space of, of exploring Christianity again is something screams of a desire for justice. So I look at, you know, stories like um, very mm -hmm. famous one in the UK would be Jamie Bolger or, or other things like that. There's this basically like a horrible story about an, an innocent child being abused and killed in some horrendous, horrific way. Um, and you kind of want to wrap this kid up in your arms and just say, you, you're so loved and you're so adored. And this is absolutely horrific. How could this ever happen to you? I just think about my, my two boys and anything ever happened to them and the, the heartache that I would have from that. And there just seems to be this thing within me. And obviously I, I'm very aware of the naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic reasonings behind people saying it's just you wanting there to be more, but something does speak within me of, of moreness, this, this hope and desire that these things will be straightened and corrected and and rectified eventually in, in, in some sort of way. Um, I'm aware the problem of pain doesn't necessarily go into those things, but they're the sort of other two bits that I've moved on from after reading the book. And you're right, there are many more resources to go and investigate. But any final thoughts before we press on? Uh, one of the things that Lewis says in Mere Christianity is he says that his main argument against God was that the universe seemed so unjust and cruel. And he then said that he then suddenly realized, well, where did he got the idea of just and unjust? He says, you don't call a line crooked unless you know what a straight line is. And he says, what was I comparing this world to when I said it was unjust? Because if it was just bad from A to Z, how would he have such this violent reaction against it? And you, you, can, you can provide an intellectual argument like that, but I do think the, our natural inclination, our, the visceral reaction that we have to injustice speaks to something very, very powerfully inside us that is, is difficult to shut down. Um, and I'd also say that you know, the, uh, some people object to, say, Christianity with the idea of there being hell. But the thing is, 
we also, as you point out, we all want justice. So we, we kind of want the books balanced. We want those that have done to great evil um, to, who, get, who get away with it in this life. And the Psalms speak again and again about those who are rich and powerful getting away with literal murder, that we want to see some sort of justice. Um, and I'd say both of those instincts, both the uh, desire for, for, for punishment for those who have done horrible evils and also restitution for those who have suffered it un unjustly, we want to see that rectified. And at least speaking for myself, I've, I've, I found the atheistic naturalistic arguments say unconvincing just when I look at my own feelings on the matter. And as we said earlier on, we're not just rational creatures. We have these feelings that are sometimes uh, incredibly powerful and they might be pointing us towards the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And I lied that the final thing I'll say on this before we move on to a grief observe. So this isn't going to get any more happy. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the, the final thing I'll say on this is, um, is also you mentioned then the justice and the, the recompense really uh, around evils done is if it's true, the tab that I owe, could be pretty big and that could be a reason why i don't want i don't want it to be true like that could be you know a gut reaction like this can't be true this isn't true because if it is true then i'm going to have a debt that's due from the wrongs that i've done which is a, re a really interesting thing anyway um we'll park up there and, and, and we'll move on so a grief observed i've read this book quite a few times it's like i don't know if you call it a book it's like 60 pages long right it's it's not it's not big um mm -hmm. But it's absolutely beautiful, uh, in, in, in my opinion. So, uh, as you already mentioned, Lewis was married for for a very short period of time. Uh, his wife passed away. Um, a grief observed is, as far as I can tell, um, uh, writings throughout the throughout the journey of grief that Lewis um, published eventually in a sort of a cumulative volume. Um, and it almost sounds at times as if um, he reaches the point of almost losing belief, almost losing hope. But, but not quite. And actually there seems to be um, this beautiful rejoining of his faith and reality, I guess you could say, as he begins to come out the other side as well. Um, it's a very challenging book. It's a very moving book. Um, so do you think that's a fair summary? And why do you think he was willing to share something as vulnerable as a grief observed? He'd already written The Problem of Pain. He'd already given so many arguments for God and his reasons and talking about myths, we've said. But then to publish something like A Grief Observed, like, you know, that, that seems quite bold. Was it even actually published in his lifetime? I'm not entirely sure. Mm -hmm. It was. Um, funnily enough, people, his friends, they loved the book so much they kept giving it to him as a gift because they knew that his wife had died, and he said, maybe this will help you. Um, yeah, Lewis's stepson, Douglas Gresham, says, we just had so many copies of that book in the house, people just kept giving them to us. Uh, yeah, so I think anyone that thinks that Lewis sticks his head in the sand about the problem of evil and suffering, they need to read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, to understand some of the things that he went through, and also a grief observed. Uh, to quote scripture, you know, he was a man well acquainted with suffering and grief. And it, you're right, it's basically his journal, in the just the first handful of weeks following his wife's death so it's very early on and it's him observing his grief observing his feelings that's why it's called a grief observed he's not trying to write a treatise he's just trying to look at himself and see what's bubbling up inside of him and there isn't any filter and anyone who's suffered at all christian or not will resonate with how lewis describes it 
that I think the, the, the way that he reacts to it is that it's that same sense of, of anger and injustice that we mentioned before. And he hadn't actually originally intended it for publication, but he published it under a pseudonym because he thought that it might help others going through grief. Uh, and I think this is also quite a common reaction when people come out of the other side of grief. They look for other people who are hurting, who are earlier in the stage and want to offer a word of consolation and encouragement to people who are going through it. Um, there's only so much that you can say when somebody's in the middle of suffering, uh, but you do want to say something to encourage people that there is an, you know, you can get to the other side of this at some point. Uh, and yeah, I mentioned earlier the, the death of our child and like Lois and like Job in the Bible, I poured out my heart in sorrow and anger, just like Lois did. And, and some people do get the impression that Lewis loses his faith here. Um, and the movie The Shadowlands is another one that leaves people with a similar impression. But he didn't. Uh, you can actually even see it at points in the text where he starts flirting with the older ideas and said, no, 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 this, this just won't work. Just won't work. Um, and he, he also writes both uh, Defending the Faith and more books after A Grief Observed. So... Uh, it's, I think it's fair to say that his Christian faith is intact, but he felt a level of grief that he probably hadn't felt since he was nine years old when his mother died. And I think it's the book, its value is in simply that witness. Uh, just, 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 just to show uh, what a Christian mourning looks like. In the Bible, it, it, when it speaks of, of those who have died, it doesn't say that we shouldn't mourn, but we shouldn't mourn like those who have no hope. And you do see the traces of hope towards the end of the book, but you see the mourning. And Lewis himself said that we follow a man who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus, even though he was just about to raise him from the dead. Um, and so I, th I think it shows a much more visceral side of Lewis. I think you see what marriage did to him. <laughs> and as someone that's been married for a few years now, it's it's done a similar thing to me. I was... I was basically a robot before, but there's something about joining your life to another person that just sort of rips your heart out of your chest uh, and presents it to the world to see. And this is actually a, a disagreement that Lewis has with Augustine. I, I've mentioned that he draws a lot from him, but there's one point that he disagrees with him on. And in The Four Loves, he speaks about how uh, one would be tempted to read Augustine and conclude that the maxim should be don't ever give your love to anything that you could possibly lose. And you'll often see this quoted around the internet as attributed to Lewis, and it misses the context because Lewis rejects this idea. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. He said, the, the only place we are safe from the perturbations of love is hell. And if you really want to protect your heart, give it to nothing. Because even, even God <laughs> isn't a safe bet on, in that regard. But he says that when you give your heart to nothing, it will just shrivel up and die. And so in A Grief Observed, you, you see what happens to a heart when you know, it's given to, given to another human being and that human being is taken away. And you see the early stages of, of, the, of the reaction to that, of the, the, the grief, the anger, and the, 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 the person who starts to try and come to grips with what has happened. Uh, and without providing any kitsch or easy answers yeah yeah it's brutal in a beautiful way brutal in a beautiful way <laughs> um okay so 
there's sort of three final questions and I'll kind of frame them now and we can just hit, hit them in order so we get them correct. So um, I'm going to kind of want us to kind of have a look at um, C.S. Lewis resources as in what you would recommend people to read of Lewis himself um, if you would recommend them to read um, this is the sort of second, secondary then other resources for C.S. Lewis so whether you'd expect the people to go and read Chesterton or, or anything else to kind of give them some more information finally obviously kind of look at yourself and your own work and, and your podcast and stuff so so starting with the first of the three then um, David if somebody was new to Lewis for the first time kind of two three books like what what would you recommend somebody start with to begin to dip their toes into this space i would first of all ask the question what kind of books do you like because lewis has probably written one of them uh, he wrote in every single genre so if you like satire i would thoroughly recommend the screwtip letters it's easily one of his most popular books it's hilarious even if you don't believe in the supernatural if you don't think devils are a real thing i Still contend, I think you'll really enjoy the book because it is very funny. And you can take a lot of what Lewis is saying about the spiritual reality to be just simply psychological. And I, I think that one's well worth reading. If you want to get a basic take on Christianity and Lewis's presentation of it, Mere Christianity is uh, a really good place to start. He's also written literary criticism. If you like sci-fi, we've just gone through Out of the Silent Planet on our podcast. Uh, but of course, Lewis's best work is The Great Divorce. So I would, uh, I would also suggest people have a go at that. If you're Christian, I would just remind you that he is not trying to describe what heaven, hell, and purgatory are actually like. Uh, and if you are a non-believer, I would just invite you to consider the ways in which he describes that people choose lesser goods rather than the greater goods which are offered to them. I think it's a really valuable lesson in life in general. As for secondary materials, um, I don't like to toot my own horn, but doot doot. Uh, I've been trying to collect the best Lewis resources on our website. So if listeners go to pintswithjack.com slash books and click on the book you're interested in, you'll find podcasts, videos, commentaries, every, anything that I've found that I thought was useful about that book, uh, as well as books that you can buy. Um, th there will all be attached to that book. I think it's probably the easiest way of, of attacking the material. Also, although you obviously should subscribe to Pints with Jack, there are lots of other great Lewis podcasts out there. The Lamppost Listener, they go through Narnia chapter by chapter. The Lesser Known Lewis podcast, they go through his essays. And actually, that's probably worth mentioning. Lewis wrote lots and lots of essays. So if you just kind of want to dip into him and just get a, get a sense of what he was like, you could read the essays. All of the great people of, of that era seem to write essays. You know, your, your Shaws uh, and your... And, and, uh, and, and, and Lewis's and Chesterton's and everybody wrote these short little essays so you can get a really good feel for how they think and how they write. Um, but I would also suggest that people try watching The Most Reluctant Convert. It was originally a one-man play starring Max McLean and it was recently adapted into a movie and it's beautifully done and it chronicles Lewis's faith journey. So if, you're, if you've got particular interest in how Lewis came to God, came to Christianity, that's a really good non- kitsch non-annoying uh not annoying movie uh because it's mostly adapting from lewis's own works virtually everything that the lewis character says is pulled from the weight of glory or surprised by joy or mere christianity and as for our own stuff um you can find pints of jack wherever you find podcasts we also have a youtube channel where the audio is uploaded and you can also find some sporadic video interviews as well and everything is at our website pintswithjack.com 
If you would like to reach out, we have a contact us page, or you can just email contact at pintswithjack.com. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or MySpace. We're bringing it back. MySpace, nice. It's been, it's been a few decades. It's been a few <laughs> decades, but it's still there. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's coming back. Everyone's going to leave Facebook. Yeah. Watch this. Yeah, give it another few decades. Um, okay, cool. So uh, that's all three of those things. So I really appreciate that. Um, is there anything that we should sign off with? Like, how, how, how do you want to end this? Obviously, Lewis, big influence on you, on me, on hopefully quite a lot of the audience as well. So where should we go from here? I would just say that Lewis is an important figure in 20th century thought and particularly in Christianity. So whatever someone's background is, I think he's worth investigating and worth reading in the same way that I think that Christians should read, you know, uh, about Bertrand Russell, um, the, 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 the works of H.G. Wells. These are, these are important figures that have shaped much of the world that we live in. And so I would just say it, it pays to have something of an, dip your toes in the water, have a little bit of a cursory understanding of who this person was and how they thought. Because I think pretty much regardless of whatever world you bring to any of those works, your worldview will be enriched as a result of having read them. David, my friend, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. I had a blast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of When Belief Dies. As always, to leave any comments or thoughts, head on over to YouTube. To follow me on Twitter or to see where else I'm online, check out the links in the description. Thank you to all our regular givers for making this show a reality. And until next time, enjoy the journey.